0: Good morning and welcome to Horizon West Church Online. Uh, we are delighted to have you with us today. Uh, we are also eagerly look forward, looking forward to next Sunday, the 26th. We're going to be gathering in person again. and want to encourage you, if you're ready to be uh, in an in-person gathering, and of course we're making all the necessary precautions to facilitate that, but next Sunday night meeting again at Harvest Church in Horizon West. We want to encourage you to come out 5 o'clock on the 26th. And I also want to encourage you if you haven't yet and you have children to get them registered for for Vacation Bible School. That starts tomorrow morning. Uh, You can go to the horizonwestchurch.com website and get the information for that. Uh, But we'd love to see your kids participate with VBS online this week. I know my kids are excited and I hope yours are as well. When I was in high school, um, I was kind of a class clown type, um, if you can believe that, and um, I was at a friend's house. We were having a youth group party, and without asking permission from my friend's parents, I saw some beef jerky on the counter, and I thought, man, I'm just going to like stuff my face with beef jerky. Maybe I'll get a laugh. Maybe it'll taste good, whatever it is, and so I pounded that beef jerky in my mouth, and it was terrible. What I didn't realize was that it was not beef jerky, but rather dog food. Now, because my friends were good friends, two of them followed me in eating the dog food, knowing that it was dog food. But here's what I realized in that moment. Not everything that looks a certain way or looks to be a certain thing, in fact, is. Today, we're going to be in Second Peter, and Peter is going to expose a group within the church that appears to be a certain way. And Peter's going to say, friends, they are not, in fact, that way. And from there, we're going to see three calls to action that Peter, as an aging pastor, an aging apostle, is going to give the church. Three calls to action in the face of these individuals who are not what they appear to be. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. I want to invite you to turn there with me, and I'm going to read this entire chapter. So uh, buckle up and follow along with me. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. "...greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority." Bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater and uh, mightier in power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, and they will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes reveling reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own sin. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved." For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. And what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Well, I hope you are encouraged. God bless you and have a great week. No, I'm kidding. That, that is a hard hitting and a heavy passage, isn't it? That, that's not a passage that pastors typically are eager to preach. And yet it's so important that as we open God's word and as we walk through this epistle or this letter from the apostle Peter, that we hit this head on. Peter's going to say to this church and he's going to say to us, listen, not everyone who appears to be true can be in fact trusted. You'll notice in the very first word of the chapter of Second Peter chapter two is the word but. But now, sometimes in the New Testament or actually throughout Scripture, there are what I would call transitional words, words like therefore or for or so. And when you see a word like that, and but being one of them, you need to go back and look at what it's referencing. This is a contrast word. Peter's saying, but here's something else. What is Peter contrasting? He's contrasting the last thing he was just talking about in chapter 1. Last week, the last point of the message from chapter 1, our message, the message of the gospel is true. And Peter is going to say, but there's another side. Now, of course, Peter wasn't putting chapter breaks when he's writing this. This is just a letter. So this is a continuation of thought. Peter's saying, just as our message is true, but also you need to know this other fact. When I was younger, my dad was a police officer when I was uh, actually very young. And I'll never forget him telling me when I got a little bit older about going through police academy and the training. And, and, And as a police officer, he was trained in discerning counterfeits. And what my dad told me that stuck with me, he said, what we did not do at the police academy was evaluate and examine all the different counterfeit bills that exist in the world. There's different ones published and put out almost daily. People trying to rip off the real thing, trying to scam people using counterfeit bills. My dad said, what they train you in the police academy to do is to study and know the real thing so well that when you see a counterfeit, you know it. And Peter's saying to the church, just as there were counterfeits in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, counterfeits, people who claimed to be prophets of God, but were prophesying false narratives, things that were not from God. And Peter says, so too, in the New Testament church, and even in the 21st century church, there will be people trying to counterfeit the real thing. And Peter's going to bring us back to anchoring in what is true and what is real this is the first call to action that Peter is going to give us. The first call to action is that we practice discernment. Matthew chapter 10 verse 16, Jesus left the disciples with a very important word. This is what he said, behold I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves so be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Jesus is telling the apostles there are going to be people among you. these He's going to call them wolves, counterfeits, people that are going to try to destroy you, try to destroy your faith. So even as you live innocently, even as you live lives of integrity, keep your guard up and be wise. Do not be caught off guard by these false teachers. Uh, If you've ever gambled and Yes, you can f- confess that. I'm a pastor. You can confess that to me. Or maybe you've played Mafia. Some of you remember the game that, that we used to play. And uh, I'll, I'll use that illustration. That might work a little bit better. But in Mafia, this is a game where everybody claims to be a certain role, like a sheriff or a doctor or a citizen. And, and, and you're trying to weed out the bad guys and have the, the good guys win. And, and this game was really popular probably 15 or 20 years ago. And, and one of the things when you're playing this game is you've got to try to discern from just facial expression or things that are said, man, who's the good guys and and who's the bad guys? And I started noticing that some people had certain tells, things that tipped off the fact that they were not who they said that they were. I want to give you a couple of tells that false prophets or false teachers have, and Peter's going to point them out in just those first three verses. The first tell of a false teacher is this, denial of the lordship of Jesus, Peter says, these are folks who deny the master who bought them. Now, note these are not necessarily people who are anti-Jesus. They are just anti-lordship of Jesus. He doesn't say they deny the, the Savior that bought them. These are people that might be okay with a Jesus who suffered and died. They just don't want a Jesus who's the Lord and the master of their life. That's always true of false teachers. Listen to what Jesus said, going back again to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is immediately following a time where Jesus is teaching and and talking to the disciples about, guess what? About false teachers. He said, not everybody that uses my name, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, is who they appear to be. You're going to know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their conduct and their way of life. This tells us that a person can invoke the name of Jesus and even invoke the word of God and have no regard for either one. Believers, we got to have our guard up we got to be wise. we got to be discerning what Peter is saying. Practice discernment when you hear a message, when you see a preacher of what appears to be the gospel, make sure that what you're hearing is the real thing. I would encourage you to ask this question. When you're listening to a sermon, is the focus of the priest, preacher's message, your desires or God's glory? Is the focus your desires and, and, and meeting some felt need, or is it ultimately about the glory of God? See, God can be glorified through healing, but he can also be glorified through sickness. God can be glorified through success. He can also be glorified through failure. And in the preaching of false teachers, God exists, it seems, to to meet the desires or serve people. But in the true gospel, God exists to meet the deepest need of people so that we can live for the glory of God. It's about him, not about us. False teachers use what I would call lordless preaching, lordless preaching. They might invoke the name of Jesus, they might read scripture, but you'll notice that the context of their teaching does not place Jesus as Lord over all things. A person who preaches a lordless message might be somebody who preaches Jesus as fire insurance to get out of punishment, but has no interest in discipling people in the way of Christ to live for the glory of God. A person who preaches a lordless message maybe someone who uses Jesus as the key to health and wealth and happiness, but in fact does not care so much about holiness. This is what we might call the prosperity gospel, and interestingly enough, that's the next place that Peter goes. One of the other tells of false teachers is greed. He says in verse 3, in their greed they will exploit you. See, for false teachers, in place of having Jesus as the Lord of their life, they've got the almighty dollar as the Lord of their life. Earlier this week, I was watching a a Netflix documentary called American Gospel. I've never promote something without putting the caveat that everything you watch, watch with discernment and don't swallow it whole. But the American Gospel documentary basically looks at prosperity gospel and and, and kind of unpacks how it fits or does not fit with the true gospel of Jesus. And and one of the elements of that documentary that was so astounding to me was as it kind of walked through some of the lives that these prosperity gospel preachers live I ended up looking up some of these guys' net worths and would you be surprised or maybe you wouldn't be surprised to know that one of these individuals has amassed $750 million from preaching the gospel, the free gospel, the bought with the blood of Jesus gospel. We should ask a question, friends. How does a person amass $750 million pulled from the churches of people that follow them When the gospel is free, these are questions we need to wrestle with. Somebody might push back and say, well, is it wrong to be exorbitantly wealthy? Is it wrong to have uh, uh, just an embarrassment of riches? I would say, yes, it is. Because I think that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus doesn't say where your treasure is, your heart may be. He doesn't even say make sure that your heart isn't where your treasure is. Jesus says, if you've amassed just an an incredible amount of wealth and you've stored up wealth on earth, guess what? Your heart's going to be there. And prosperity gospel, false teachers, they're going to amass these things and they're going to they're amass these riches and this, this wealth. And guess what? It's an indication of where their heart is. See, I believe true teachers of the gospel use their wealth to advance the gospel. False teachers use the gospel to advance their wealth. So part of discernment as we're looking at preachers and teachers of the gospel is to evaluate, man, where is their heart? What seems to be the highest value to them? Is it earthly things? Is it temporary gain? Is it pleasure? Or is it the gospel of Jesus? Number one, practice discernment. Second thing Peter is saying, I believe, is this, anticipate judgment. Anticipate judgment. Now this is tough, right? This isn't something we like to talk a lot about. But in 22 verses in 2 Peter chapter 2, conservatively, I would say, 15 of them speak directly to the judgment of God. Listen, I'm, I won't read them all back to you, but listen to some of the ways Peter describes the judgment of God. Verse 1, he refers to the false teachers bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 3, their condemnation is not idle. Verse 4, God will cast them into hell. Verse 6, their They uh, they have been condemned to extinction. Verse 9, they are under punishment. Verse 12, they're caught and destroyed. Verse 12, destroyed in their destruction. Verse 13, suffering wrong. Verse 14, accursed. Verse 17 refers to the gloom of utter darkness. And verse 20 says their last state is worse than their first state. Now, it would be easier to just kind of skip over that stuff and not talk about the judgment of God, but the scripture is clear that we are in to, to anticipate God's judgment coming. Now, in Second Peter, what, what Peter is doing, he's addressing a particular group of people that, that he's calling false teachers. These are people who intentionally lead others away from the truth and away from Jesus. But we know from reading the Old and New Testament, from understanding God's word, that, that every person will be judged. Every person will stand before the Lord. That's why the Spirit inspired Paul in Romans 3.23 to write, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And again, in 6.23, the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. Uh, the way I might illustrate for, for this for you is, uh, if I wanted to get to where you are, because you're not where I am right now, It would be impossible for me to do that. I I can't reach out. Even if I were to walk straight up to the camera that's recording this message and I I would just be hitting a camera, I would not be getting to you. But take the illustration further. Imagine that I'm blindfolded and imagine that my legs are broken and by the way, I don't know where you are and somebody says, hey, you've got to get to, I'm not going to be able to get to where you are. I don't know how to. I don't have the capacity to. There's no possible way for me to reach you from here. Friends, this is what the scripture teaches us about the condition of man. There is no way for us to restore ourselves to God. We cannot do it on our own. See, I think what happens is that we have a bit of a misunderstanding of the Bible, Some of you have been conditioned or or, or explicitly taught to believe that the Old Testament is about God's judgment and the New Testament is about God's mercy. The truth is, the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is about the judgment and mercy of God. So let me pause for just a second and address a question that I would, again, rather not address, but we need to address it. It's the issue of hell. This is, without question, I believe, the hardest doctrine in the Christian faith, on Monday of this week, I was uh, prayer walking in my neighborhood. Just, uh, it's one big loop; it's a one-mile circle, and so I just was praying as I was walking past houses. And kind of out of nowhere, it just occurred to me this thought of these people in the ho- these homes. I don't know their names. I don't know who they are. I don't even know if they're there right now. But these people who live in these homes where are they headed when they die? Like, do they have a relationship with God? Is their eternal destination heaven or is it hell? And and then because my mind was working, it just works weird. My my mind went to this. It's an election year and I thought, I wonder if I was to poll my neighborhood and ask them, hey, if Jesus was on the ballot in 2020, would you vote for him? Follow with me for just a second. I'm going somewhere. If Jesus was on the ballot, would you vote for him? If you knew that a vote for Jesus meant you gave up all rights and all freedom and personal autonomy, and he was not just your president, but your king and your Lord, that that his way was 100% the way, would you vote for Jesus? Because the reality, we like to think we would, but for most people in our world, if they really knew what Jesus would do and the kind of uh, uh, control that he would have, they would not vote for him. Because the truth is, we value our freedom more than the goodness of God. We value, another way to say it, we value personal autonomy more than the presence of God. And so, is it not right for God to judge that? See, any corner of the universe that rejects the kingship of God is a corner of the universe where the kingdom of God can't flourish. And such a place, even if it's the heart, or, uh, the heart of a woman or a man, cannot be allowed in God's eternal kingdom. Friends, I, I hope you hear what I'm, what I'm saying. God's kingdom must advance. God's kingdom must fill every corner of the universe. And where there is rebellion against God, where there is a holdout, where there is someone saying, time out, I want to live my own life. I don't want Jesus to be Lord. Jesus must judge. I think we struggle with the judgment of God. I know that I do. And, and, and before we kind of skip past this, I want to address a few reasons for that. These may just be my reasons, but maybe some of these resonate with you as well. First, I think we struggle with the judgment of God because we can't imagine God doing something that we wouldn't do. You think, man, I, I, would, never, I would never judge somebody in that way. I would never send somebody to, to hell. I wouldn't do those things. But what we're really saying in that is, I kind of think God should be like me. I, I kind of think God should operate the way I, I operate, think the way I think. And the scripture is clear, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The truth is God cares far more about human flourishing than we do, than I do. And because of that, he must judge sin. Another reason I think we struggle with the judgment of God is because many of us living in the United States of America were somewhat insulated from the worst uh, evil that exists in the world. We, we haven't lived through ISIS killings. We haven't lived through the Holocaust. We haven't lived through genocide. And we go, man, we kind of start to craft this ideology that now people are pretty good. I mean, I think my neighbors are pretty good. I think I'm pretty good. I, I'm not exposed to significant amounts of evil day in and day out. But most of the world through most generations of time, this was a hopeful message believers being persecuted, believers being executed, slaughtered at the hands of their persecutors. The judgment of God to them was the justice of God. It was God making all things right. They longed for it. There can be no justice without God's judgment. One other reason I think we struggle with the judgment of God, and it's this, because somewhere along the line, we kind of stop teaching the parts of the Bible that speak to it, right? We kind of danced around it. And I'm speaking as a pastor. I'm saying our our churches, we tended to avoid the message of judgment. And the truth is, what one generation stops preaching, the next generation will stop believing. It'll start to sound foreign. Man, I've not heard that, or maybe I heard that a long time. Nobody's preaching that anymore. That can't be true. By the way, it's not only true that what one generation stops teaching, the next stops believing, but what one generation stops living the next will stop believing as well. See, we got to both teach and live the truths of the gospel. This, This to me is the basic message of 2 Peter. Live the gospel, teach the gospel, pass on the gospel. And one of the parts that we have to pass on that we can't avoid even though we would like to is the reality of God's judgment. Let me share one more thought on the issue of judgment before we move on. Did you know that it's not just unbelievers that will experience God's judgment? I want to give you a couple of verses. Hang in there with me for just a second. This is what scripture says. If anyone builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, will be known. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Let me give you one more. For it is time, this is 1 Peter four seventeen. for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The reality is judgment's going to come to us Now, for the believer, there's a real hope in that because we know that our salvation is secured. The blood of Jesus has purchased us. We do not need to be afraid. We don't need to be trembling. We don't need to be at all not looking forward to the day of God's judgment and deliverance. But we do need to live with the reality that our work will be tested, that God will examine the things we said, the things we did, the motivations of the heart, were they his glory or were they selfish gain, were they personal ambition and we will stand under judgment even as we are saved by God. And, and, and more importantly, and this is where I think Peter's going, for the unbeliever, there's got to be a response. When you anticipate the judgment of God, there is a response that is necessary. And this is the third call to action that Peter's going to give us. This is it. Lay hold of Jesus. Lay hold of Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 9, the first part of that verse says this, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. I love this verse uh, because this verse is like an island in the middle of this crazy storm of God's judgment. And Peter reminds us, but remember, God is able to rescue those who are his. I tend to think that this is actually the overarching and primary theme of all of Scripture, that God is rescuing his people out of destruction. Peter gives us two examples. One is Noah in the midst of the flood where God saved him and his family. The other is Lot in the midst of the fire when God saved him and his family. But there are other examples I could give you. The Israelites passing through the Red Sea and the Egyptians being drowned in it. Esther, a woman of God who, who, who saved her people or God saved his people through her. And the man who was trying to engineer their destruction, Haman, was executed. Over and over and over and all through Revelation especially, we see this theme emerging from Scripture that God's judgment is coming, but there is deliverance for those who are his. The Bible from beginning to end teaches the destruction of God's enemies and the deliverance of God's people. Amazingly enough, in the very first Christian message ever preached, Acts chapter 2, Peter preached on the judgment of God. He said things like this, you've killed the Messiah, you killed God's anointed one, but God has raised him from the dead. And and part of what God did in that message, what the spirit did was he used the, the reality and the anticipation of judgment to cause people to ask this question. In Acts 2, they said, brothers, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Each one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Translation, Peter said, Lay hold of Jesus. He is our way of escape. He is our rescuer. I said earlier that the Old Testament and New Testament together as God's word, both deal with the judgment and mercy of God. The big difference between those two covenants is Jesus. Is Jesus. In the New Testament, we learn that simply by laying hold of Jesus, we will be saved. We will be delivered from sin, delivered from judgment. We will be delivered from eternal hell. This is the good news of the gospel. I want to share one more passage of scripture with you that speaks to this point. Romans 5, verses six through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And praise God for that. In Jesus, you who were once an enemy of God and destined for destruction have become a child of God, destined for deliverance and eternal life and eternal peace. That's the good news. That is the gospel message. I said earlier that if I tried to reach you through that screen, you know I couldn't do that. And especially if I was blindfolded and, and you know, legs broken, there'd be no way for me to get to you. And, and I want to revisit that because the truth is that is our scenario spiritually, and yet Jesus came To us, Jesus crossed the distance. He knew where to find us. He took us in our broken state, died on our behalf, was raised to life on the third day, and can make us right with God by faith. I just want to encourage you if you've not yet made that proclamation of faith, if you've not placed your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, I would plead with you to do that today. Last week, I was on the phone with one of our church members. And uh, there was a sudden situation. He texted me, said, I have a family member uh, who's down to her last minutes. I need your help. She doesn't know Jesus. And, And I called this brother and I said, you know, kind of try to figure out the situation. Is she conscious? Can she understand anything? How much time does she have? The truth was she was really moments away from passing into eternity. And I said to this friend, this member of our church, I said, tell her everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the name of the Lord is Jesus tell her to call on Jesus. See, because in that moment, there wasn't time for a Bible study or a theological uh, unwrapping of all the things of Scripture, but, but you could say, hey, lay hold of Jesus. He is your way of salvation. He's your way of escape. He's your way to be made right with God. Just like the thief on the cross, who in his dying breath said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, this very day, you'll be with me. Friend, if you've not yet turned your life over to the lordship of Jesus, this is the day to do that very thing, to lay hold of Jesus. In just a moment, we're gonna sing a song called Build My Life. And the song basically says, I'm gonna build my life on the foundation of God's love and of who God is. And, And I would encourage you, maybe use that time to actually lay that foundation. If you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, use this time as we sing to say, Lord, I want to know you. I surrender my sin. I surrender myself to the lordship of Jesus. Would you save me? Would you make me right with God? And if you'll pray that prayer, God will answer that prayer and you will be saved. For the rest of us, practice discernment, anticipate judgment, and we will continue to lay hold of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word because uh, these are your words, not mine. God, this is your message and not mine. And Lord, even though there's something in me that wants to resist that or or, or not have to, to preach such a hard message, God, it is yet a very good and exciting message. It's exciting because though there's judgment, there is salvation. And it's not through something that we do. It's not through religion. It's not through some magic potion, God. We can just simply lay hold of Jesus. And through him, we can receive the righteousness of God, deliverance from sin and judgment. So God, if there's anyone listening today, watching today, who's not done that, would this be their day of salvation? That they would know that they stand on the solid ground of the death of Jesus for them. We love you. We do build our life on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you are inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.